School's out for summer, and Redbox has the video games to keep you entertained. With over 40,000 locations nationwide, you can rent and return anywhere, and you'll get a free one-night game rental from Redbox when you use the promo code SNELL6. Swing by a box in your neighborhood, or if you want to make sure the game is there, when you arrive, reserve it online at redbox.com games. Offer valid through August 5th, subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. Getting into video games has never been so easy. The Incomparable Number 363 July 2017 Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. This is another one of those bonus episodes where we get to talk with somebody who is a recurring Incomparable panelist, and in this case, hosts his own show on The Incomparable Network, about something that they made that is in the world or about to be in the world. And we uh, think it's fun to talk about this stuff with a minimum. We're not going to spoil it. We want to get you excited and interested about the process of creating something and having it come out into the world. Joining me to talk about his graphic novel, The Coldest City, which in turn has become a major motion picture, Atomic Blonde, in theaters soon, very soon. It's Anthony Johnston. Hello. Hello. The Atomic Blonde film... I should say, for those who who care, July 28th, you should all care, July 28th, in every theatre everywhere. In the US. Uh, Uh, In in the UK and Europe, it's August 11th. Okay, well, we'll we'll be sure to, because we're horrible Americans, we will release this in time for all of America to see Atomic Blonde (laughs) and whet the appetites of those in Europe and elsewhere who must wait until the dog days of August to see it. Boy, we, we got one early this time. Usually, these international rollouts start out in elsewhere and then show up in the U.S. late. That's right, yeah. And this one was going to be August 11th worldwide, but the... I mean, you know, I'm not privy to sort of the internal shenanigans that go on at the studio uh, in terms of scheduling, but I gather that basically a slot came up. Uh, and ah. July, July is a better time to launch a movie than August. August is not. August used to be a wasteland. It used to be terrible uh, because there are so many big tentpole movies in the summer now. That's not actually the case anymore, apparently. Mm. But nevertheless, July is still better than August in the US, at least. Better strategically, given what else is going to be in theaters then, and given right. the content of this movie, some exactly yeah. a slot came up, so they were like, right, let's pull it back in the oh. US, but we'll leave it in August everywhere else. All right, go figure. Well, well, it's good for us. I get to see the movie uh, earlier. It's fantastic. I'd like to go back to the beginning of this. So this is we'll get to the major motion picture part. But I want to start with the the source material with with the, the graphic novel that you wrote and Sam Hart illustrated The Coldest City. Uh, which was released in 2012, I want to say. Is that right? That's, five? that's correct. May of 2012, yeah. All right. So a little more than five years from publication to releasing the movie based on the graphic novel. Not bad. Not bad. Sometimes it seems to take decades. There have been faster, but there have also definitely been slower adaptations to film, yeah. So take me back to the beginning. Where did this uh, where did this start? I don't want to say where did this idea come from, but obviously you had <laughs> because we know what mail order system that you get and there's a small town in 
Yorkshire. A little old lady in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, but but what what prompted you to write the the coldest city? Let's let's recap just briefly. We'll get into it maybe in more detail. But the coldest city is a is a spy thriller set in Berlin, um, but not in the depths of the Cold War. I think that we usually think of for a Cold War story, but literally as the Cold War is is ending and the berlin wall is going to come down and so all sort of the 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 movie uh the pitch that i always give people when i'm talking about about this is all all uh scores must be settled all ledgers must be cleared because everybody knows the game is about to end and is acting accordingly that's would you say that's sort of an accurate description of what happens in the coldest city it, well, it's an accurate description of the setting, absolutely, yes. yeah. I mean, we, uh, I think we, on the blurb on the back of the book, it might say something like the dying days of the Cold War, yeah. which is a nice way of putting it. Uh, and communism is collapsing, and, you know, soon both sides are going to tear down the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain, yeah. So that is, that's the setting, and obviously you can imagine for a spy book that that brings with it its own set of concerns. As you say, everybody's got to clear their books and make sure that their side isn't exposed when this happens and the thing is of course you know in reality nobody knew w- w- exactly when it was going to happen but uh you know and it might seem that i'm taking a liberty in the story with that but actually that's not true if you you know read up on intelligence stuff at the time everybody had a feeling because this was post um Gorbachev yeah, becoming yeah. premier and stuff. You know, it was the era of Glasnost and Perestroika. And so there was a feeling, there was a sense that, uh, you know, the USSR was opening up. The, not necessarily that the USSR itself would collapse, as it did eventually, but certainly that the Iron Curtain might come down and the Berlin Wall might if not physically come down, then sort of, you know, at least open up so that travel between East and West would once again be uh, not restricted. That was a genuine sense in the air at the time. So it's not too much of a stretch that, you know, characters in the book do speculate on what that will mean and feel that it is coming soon. Well, this is 1989. I was in college then. I remember this very clearly. In fact, that's that's one of the things I enjoy about this setting is that so much Cold War storytelling is set in the 60s, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, or or maybe it's in the early 80s, like The Americans is a story about Russian spies in in Reagan's America. But this is set at a time that I remember very clearly. I was following the news closely as a college student. It was something that I was paying very close attention to. And that's one of the delights I have in it is that it it doesn't feel, even though it's a period piece, absolutely, it feels more... Um, contemporary to me as somebody who lived through the 80s than any of the Cold War stuff that I read that was set in the 60s, which felt much more foreign to me. And I do remember, I think it's absolutely fair to to have the expectation that this was going to happen, because I remember very clearly that what what had already happened was that Germans in the East, in East Germany were able to pass through to I think pass through to Austria or pass through through Hungary Hungary to Austria there was there were there were openings in in the Iron Curtain right, already yeah. but they were less convenient you had to go the, the kind of long way around to get back to Germany to the western part of Germany and at that point the and, and people were flooding those border checkpoints so it seemed oh, yeah. inevitable yeah, yeah. that that the the it, it had sprung a leak and that it was only a matter of time before the whole thing came apart because what what was the point 
in keeping the wall up? What was the point in in blocking this door when that door was wide open? And and so it was it, it was you could see it coming at this point, right when your story is being told. Yeah, well, and we in the West could see that there was a hunger. I mean, you know, our own Cold War propaganda had already told us that there was this hunger and desire on the part of the East. Everybody wanted to escape the East. Everybody wanted to defect and escape to the freedom-loving West and all that. That's what we were told. But we could see for ourselves when those uh, small legal holes in the Iron Curtain started to open, as you say, there was such demand. It was you couldn't really deny that there was enormous appetite on the part of people living in the East to come to the West, whether as visitors who might intend to go home or, you know, to come to the West and then immediately try and defect and escape and live here full time. So, again, it's not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't too much of a stretch to make that feeling prevalent in the book and like you that you know we're about the same age i lived through this as well i follow the news and i remember and this is one of the reasons why the book is why i chose this setting apart from everything we've just talked about and which just makes it interesting but also i remember watching the berlin wall come down Mm -hmm. on live television news because i obviously i live in england so i'm only an hour time difference removed from berlin and i remember watching the live news broadcasts as those famous scenes of the guys with the sledgehammers pulling down sections of the wall which are actually you know those scenes open the book uh because that's such that sets the scene immediately if you remember that time you will remember those scenes i certainly do they are burned into my brain forever um and I remember watching Wrapped, those those broadcasts and those scenes because, and it's very difficult, it's very difficult to uh, explain this, not explain it, but it's it's difficult to sort of get across to people who didn't live through it, just how permanent the Cold Mm -hmm. War felt at the time. And you'll remember this, certainly. And as I say, me living in England, especially very close to Europe in the Iron Curtain, I especially remember that it just felt... Because it had, the Iron Curtain had been up and the Berlin Wall had been up for literally decades. We had known nothing else. I had known nothing else in my yes. entire lifetime. And it really did feel like this would never end. This would always be the situation in Europe, the situation with Russia. It, w- it was a feature of the world. This was how the yes. world was. This is how it was like geography. It was part of the maps. Yeah. It, yeah. It was like saying that mountain won't be there anymore. It's like, well, that's exactly. not, that's not possible. That <laughs> that's mountain not will stay happen. there. Yeah. The, but, but the separation of Germany and the Berlin Wall is absolutely, that was just, that was the, uh, a regional feature, a geographic feature of Europe was a line down the middle of it, separating in, into East and West. And so when the wall came down, it was impossible. Seismic. It literally changed the world. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah, it literally changed the world. And like I say, it's the idea that this thing that had seemed so permanent could now suddenly be over, it, overnight. I mean, it was literally overnight that the Berlin Wall, not necessarily that it physically came down, but metaphorically, it was literally overnight that people just started flooding from east to west in Berlin. And then over the course of the next uh, weeks, you know, it became official and parts of the wall actually started coming down and and blah, blah. But in terms of people actually being able to go from east to west without being shot, because that used to happen, um, you know, freely without being shot, that literally changed overnight. And it it was astounding at the time. 
So the um, and then when I think about spies and other spy craft in this setting, I the image that comes to my mind is if you pick up a rock and all of a sudden there are a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, bugs underneath it that are scrambling because now they're they, they've been exposed they're to light exposed, and, they're, yeah, yeah. and they're like, well, well, what do we do now? That's sort of what I feel like is happening in the coldest city is <laughs> is the spies know what's coming and they're scrambling and these are the last moves. This is the end game and your um, your main character is thrust into this into this situation to deal with this chaotic and she's an outsider right she has knowledge yes. but she's an outsider she doesn't know the terrain in berlin which means that we get to kind of ride along with her as she tries to parse the situation that's exactly it i mean it's it's a convenient storytelling device but it also works because the whole uh reason that she's sent in is that MI6 in London don't know who they can trust right. in Berlin anymore. They literally don't know if they can trust their own people anymore in Berlin. And so they have to send in somebody who has no previous ties to the city, who doesn't have, you know, friends there who are spies or who hasn't been there before and already made contacts that might influence and bias them. And so that's why they choose Lorraine. She's an experienced veteran spy who has been across the Iron Curtain many times, but has never actually operated in Berlin and doesn't know the Berlin station chief, character called David Percival, uh, who has been in Berlin for, at that point, a decade. And uh, MI6 are concerned that he might have gone native. But we're getting, we're sort of getting ahead of the the premise (laughs) of the (laughs) plot. So let's kind of rewind a little. And just uh, in case people don't realise, by the way, um, I've been writing comics and graphic novels now for almost 20 years. So this is uh this is a sort of mid period book <laughs> if you like right. of mine uh what happened was that i i had been doing a lot of commissioned work both in comics and video games and i was starting to feel a little bit burned out not permanently burned out but you know how it is sometimes you sort of you're grinding and there's something you want to do but you're just not getting to it and what have you and you feel like your time's not your own sometimes and i was reaching that stage and I had just written an arc of the spin-off series of Greg Rucker's Queen and Country, which is a, a wonderful contemporary spy thriller comic series published by Only Press, same people who publish The Coldest City. Um, and I, uh, there was a spin-off se- series of series, if you like, of that book called Queen and Country Declassified, which dealt with the uh, prior careers of the main characters before they joined mi6 and i was chosen greg asked me to write one of those for one particular character um for various reasons and i had such i've always loved spy fiction i've always read spy fiction i've always watched spy movies i've always loved it spy tv shows even man from uncle the champions you know those 60s uh the persuaders and the saint and all those sorts of you know euro spy type 1960 series i loved them uh but for some reason it had never occurred to me to try writing a spy fiction of my own. Uh, and so I had such fun writing this Queen and Country Declassified series that I, I thought I have to do something in this genre of my own, uh, something original. And th- that was about a year before, I think, or maybe two years before. And then, like I say, I was starting to feel like I hadn't done anything for myself for a while. And so I, in the summer of two thousand. Eight, I believe it was. Uh, I basically cleared all my, I finished all my projects, cleared all my commitments, and then took a chunk of the summer, two months, 
essentially in the summer of 2008 and with nothing else on my plate and just sat down and wrote this book, wrote The Coldest City, spent two months planning and scripting this graphic novel purely for me. Uh, I didn't really concern myself with whether or not a publisher wanted to Mm. publish it or whether other people would want to read it. I didn't have an artist uh, on hand at the time. It was purely just, I need to write this script, get it out, get it sort of out of my system, if you like. Um, And then at the end of it, if it's good, well, then I'll try and sell it. But that wasn't, the main purpose was just to sort of, like I say, take some time for myself and recharge those batteries, if you like. Uh, and the and what came out of it was the coldest city, which obviously, ironically, <laughs> it turned out to be is probably going to wind up being the most successful thing I've ever written. Um, but isn't that the way it goes? You know, a lot of the time. I'm not sure. I, I would say that that that's ironic. I mean, I think what you make a great case for is having that ability creatively to stop and get off the treadmill a little bit and. Uh, you also make a case for when you've got a project that jumps out at you like that, that makes you want to clear your schedule and do it, that you should listen to that intuition about it, that that's your brain telling you something about how you, you should work on this project because there's something, there's something here. I, I think that's, um, instead of just kind of going through, we all get comfortable in our grooves, but to have that moment of saying, no, I want to do this. I want to, I want to step off. And I know you did this, what, last summer as well with a, with a novel project. This the same yes. sort of thing happened where you, you wanted to do a different kind of project and, and, and devote a little bit of time to it. So this is obviously something that you've done more than once. And I think listening to that creative voice, listening to that in the back of your head saying, I need to change it up a little bit. And I, there's a story I want to tell is, uh, is something that maybe all creative people should uh, recognize as like a good it's a good thing it's a good trait it it is i mean it also however requires being able to do that sure uh you know and i I, at the time uh, was in a very fortunate position that i had done enough work you know like i said for other people including some video game work that was just sort of towards the start of my video game career um by that point i'd been writing comics for you know quite some time but it was the start of my video game career and i'd just written a couple of big games so i i kind of i could afford to take a couple of months off that's not always possible you know and i, I know that myself from my own early career when i was working you know as all young creators do uh you know every hour that I could possibly find just to sort of uh, pay my bills and scrape a living. So, you know, it's, I I agree with you that uh, creators should do it if they're able, but I don't like to guilt creators who are literally aren't able to do that because they need to pay their bills i don't want to make them feel guilty well there are different <laughs> extremes in terms of uh, of setting setting time aside like i've i've um done it where i've marked off time in the week and said i'm going to devote devote uh, friday mornings to this project that i want to work on that is not going right. I, I know i've got other pressing projects that i need to work on but i'm going to devote this time on this day to that i've also done it when i started doing national novel writing month that was essentially the same sort of thing of i'm going to devote mostly evenings after work for and i can't do it for my whole life of of shutting myself off from my family and 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 writing for several hours in the evening but i could do it for 30 days and get something out of it so there are, there are other ways that if you can't just take a couple months off in the summer to write a project there may be right. other ways to to make a deal with yourself saying i'm going to sequester this amount of time or i'm going to spend this period of time working on this project 
in a, in a level that isn't sustainable for the long term, but it's something that'll get me something in the, in the short term uh, to get through it. I don't know, but you're right. right. You don't want to guilt people into saying, you know, what you really should do is stop accepting paying work and take a sabbatical <laughs> to write a passion yeah. project because that's tough <laughs> advice to give. Yes, it is, especially. I mean, and I have written. Uh, other passion projects like that that then haven't sold. You know, that's the other thing is, like I said, there was no guarantee. I didn't have a publisher lined up. There was no guarantee that this would sell and actually make me any money at the time uh which is you know also part of the risk <laughs> you have you have published many graphic novels i mean you and i have talked about how you may have you may be the person with the most graphic novels to their name in the english language which is kind of an amazing statistic uh, guinness on the on the line for that it, it, well original english language not talking about translated right. stuff but yes right. i i believe i have published 19 original graphic novels and for the non-comics readers out there i'll just explain what we mean by an original graphic novel or just shortened to graphic novel is a book length comic uh that is published in one go as a book and was never serialized to start with because most of the you go into a bookstore and you see the the what we in the trade call trade paperbacks but they'll often be referred to as graphic novels the graphic novel section of a bookstore and you'll see you know your your spider-man and your hulk and your batman books and what have you uh and they'll be you know 120 150 pages long uh, but what you may not realize if you're not a regular sort of comics reader and comics insider is that almost all of those books were initially serialized as uh, individual comics, you know, sort of 32-page comics that you expect to see on a spinner rack. And right. then they're collected into these book formats. That is by far the most common method of producing these book-length comics, uh, partly for economical reasons, partly just because that's the way the market has worked for many, many years, for decades. Um, but you can also make these original graphic novels and it's a form that i really like working in and believe in uh to the point where yes i as i say i think to the best of my knowledge and i may be wrong but nobody has ever come forward and sort of you know presented me with any evidence that i am uh i think i have the most original graphic novels in print of anyone in the english language comics market which is kind of crazy. So I want to take a little uh, side tangent just for a moment to ask you. So what? Because you've done both. You've also done. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Stories that have published as recurring and then are collected. How are those different? Is is it in your mind? Some of them are fully formed, um, and some some are. Um, more able to be serialized is there commerce involved i'm just curious what makes a story go down the route because somebody could have said to you can you can you break cold the city up into into issues and we'll do it that way and then we'll release the collection at the end but that's not what happened that's not what happened and if somebody had said that i would have simply had to say no because right. uh, there is there is an economic thing it's easier to amortize your costs when you produce issues and then collect those issues into a trade paperback and yes it does suit sort of serialized uh stories imagine um when when i say cliffhangers most people think of something that happens at the end of a book or the end of a tv show or even sometimes the end of a movie um but if you imagine uh the ad breaks of a tv show that's it those yeah. those normally end on cliffhangers as well they're smaller cliffhangers or some kind of revelation or turn but nevertheless they are cliffhangers and that is how i think of comics cliffhangers comic issue cliffhangers if you have a story that lends itself to that kind of storytelling where you can have these 
mini cliffhangers at the end of every issue, then that's a good format. Uh, that's why one of my comics, The Fuse, which is a sort of cops in space comic, mm-hmm. abs- absolutely fits that format because, you know, it is kind of like a TV show in comics. Uh, and so at the end of every issue, there is this little minor cliffhanger and then the case is solved at the end of the what we call a story arc, which is, you know, a sort of self-contained story that takes place over several issues. But then you get a story like this and it just doesn't lend itself to that style of storytelling. Um, there is there is no way... I, I, I approach, when I write an original graphic novel, I approach it like a prose novel, a short novel, like a, like a novella, I suppose, in terms of the amount of story in there. Um, and part of that is that writing in the original graphic novel format gives me the freedom to have, to not worry about those cliffhangers, hmm. to have one single story quite often a slow burn because i tend to i often write mysteries and thrillers and things that sort of where you know maybe not a lot happens at first and then the momentum builds and it's it slowly simmers and then suddenly everything boils over and bang there's your climax um that's you know i i write a lot of stories like that not all of them but a lot of my stories take that sort of format and a lot of those stories suit being told in one go because there aren't these easily found points where you can say, okay, yeah, we'll drop a cliffhanger in there. And, you know, the, the reader will be like, oh, what just happened? Oh, I must read the next issue, uh, which is great. And as you say, I do write stories in that format as well. But for a story like this, it doesn't have those kind of moments. Instead, it's an accumulation of clues that leads to, you know, two or three huge revelations at the end rather than a series of mini revelations and cliffhangers and so it's that and i hope i'm not getting too deep into the weeds here of sort of story structure but no you're absolutely right it's the story structure is the is the issue here where if you've got your your balance you're you're uh, doing a slow build to a big uh set of revelations at the end how do you chop that up into comic book issues it's a different it's tricky, different, yeah. different pacing entirely and so okay that that answers it's that, actually that answers i should have just said you know it's like the difference between a tv show and a movie i should yeah. have just said that <laughs> that's that's about right so um you also mentioned that this was a big risk for you because you didn't um you didn't have a publisher you didn't have an artist you you were just doing this on your own so answer answer this then which is what normally would happen do you if you have an idea for an original graphic novel or for a comic series do you write write a first issue or write uh write the script and then go to and then shop it to a publisher do you go to an artist um what what would the normal method of doing this be because i sort of assume that this is how all of these projects happen is that you have an idea and you write it and then you go to your people you know who are publishers and say here it is do you want to publish this is that not what happens no 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 no. i mean how long's a piece of string there are one of the nice <laughs> things about comics it is both frustrating but also lovely about the industry is that comics is a fairly informal business uh it doesn't have the very rigid structure that lots of other entertainment fields do um so you and i've done pretty much all of them sometimes you'll literally be hired by a company like you know if it's marvel or dc they will hire you and you don't really have much choice over the artist uh 
and you wouldn't expect to going in for that. And, you know, you will get editorial direction on which titles you're going to write and even sometimes broad outlines of what's going to happen in that title and whether you have to take other titles into consideration with crossovers and, you know, all that sort of thing. So there's that. Then there's uh, an original comic where you write a pitch rather than the script, but you, you figure it out, you plot it out, and then you write a pitch and you submit that pitch to a publisher and then they will find an artist for you. Or you could do the same thing and team up with an artist and go to the publisher as a team and pitch the book together, you know, with you and the artist already in place. Or you might write a script and then send that to either a publisher or an artist to try and gauge interest and see if a publisher wants to publish it or if an artist, a particular artist, really wants to draw it. And there are just so many ways of going about doing it because it is, as I say, it doesn't have these rigid structures that so many other entertainment media do. And that is both its its blessing and its curse, if you like. So I have most of my graphic novels because writing a graphic novel takes a long time. You know, it takes a lot longer than writing an issue of a comic. An issue of a comic takes an average professional comics writer about a week to write. Um, you know, give or take, everybody's different, but as a rule of thumb, as an average, most professional comic writers will take one week to write one issue of a comic. Um, and then an artist, most average artists, will take one month to draw one, you know, monthly issue of a comic. Uh, that's just the way the industry's shaken out over the years. Whereas a graphic novel, like this book took me two months. <laughs> you know, right. I could have written eight issues in that time. And it's about the length of eight issues of a comic or maybe even more, uh, come to think of it. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. So it takes a lot more time, a lot more sort of concentrated effort than writing a single issue of a comic. And therefore, you don't necessarily want to embark on that. Again, like I said, unless you're in the fortunate position of being able to take some time off, you don't necessarily want to embark on such a lengthy project without having a sale already in place, essentially, without having a contract in place with a publisher. At least if you're... um if you're an established, I mean, if you're not an established writer, then you need to show your show your work. I would assume, but oh, as, sure, that, that's different. Yeah, yeah. If you're just starting out, but as an established professional, why why would you write the whole thing and not know if anybody wanted to buy it? Is basically what you're saying. Unless you're crazy like me, yeah. and and so this is what happened <laughs> with you. So what happened when you when you finished when the two months are up and you've got a script for this thing that it just had to come out and now you've got it. You've got a graphic novel that you've written. Um, what happened next with the Colta City? I'll be perfectly honest here. My recollection, because this was so long ago now, my recollection is a little hazy. I think I may have, about halfway through writing it, figured, I think I'm onto something here. Um, because that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you will start writing something, and I'm sure you know this from you know from your own work, writing novels and stuff. Uh, sometimes you'll get you'll start something and you'll get into it and then you'll think, oh, this actually, this isn't working. Uh, and, you know, you, you can just tell that it can't be easily rescued. Um, and so, you know, and so you move on to something else. But I got about halfway through this and realised, like, this is working. This is actually not... A, I am fulfilling the sort of the initial goal of having a good time <laughs> writing it, right. uh, which isn't always the case. Uh, but not, not only that, <laughs> but I was also pleased with how it was coming out, which is also not always the case. And so I think I was about halfway through when I emailed my editor at Oni Press, which at the time was uh, James Lucas Jones, who is now the editor-in-chief 
He may have been editor-in-chief back then as well, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, was the editor of my book, Wasteland, post-apocalyptic, serialised. That's a comic series book that I was doing with Waste, uh, with Only Press at the time. Uh, and I mailed him and said, I have this thing I'm working on. Uh, and, you know, I've sort of written up, here's a synopsis and stuff. And, I'm you know, I'm writing it at the moment. What do you guys think? Could we put this out? Because I had very specific desires for this book i wanted it to be a graphic novel i didn't want it to be serialized uh i wanted it to be a hardback which is a you know more expensive to produce and then will cost more you know cost the customer more to buy in right. the end so that that in immediately makes it a little bit more risky um i i knew i wanted it to be black and white which it, it sounds crazy to a lot of people who aren't in the industry but black and white comics are a harder sell to the public, to the comic reading public, than colour comics. Not always. Uh, and the manga explosion of the early 2000s, thank goodness, you know, kind of put a large part of that to rest. But nevertheless, within the sort of concentrated people who go to a comic store every week crowd, they are less likely in the aggregate to pick up a black and white comic. So all of these things <laughs> were sort of working against the commercial viability of the book if you like um uh and so that's why the first people i approached were only because i i had a you know they'd already published i think at that point four or five graphic novels of mine uh plus a couple of series including this series wasteland that was set to run for like eight years um you know so i knew well, i had a good relationship with them i knew they trusted me and knew that i could that if i believed a story was working i wasn't blowing smoke you know that they would believe me and go oh, okay well this is probably worth looking at and thankfully they did uh and so when it was finished then i sent them the whole script and uh we found an artist and they agreed to publish it and so on so i think as i say that that happened about halfway through rather than at the end so i didn't i only went maybe a month but that's still a month without knowing <laughs> whether it'll work whether anybody's going to publish it uh whether any whether it's of interest to anyone else at all which is something i often struggle with with my books i write these things that uh that i really really want to write i always write books that i want to read you know my uh my guiding light if if you will is to always write something that i would want to pick up and read myself which is fine except that i know i also have fairly eclectic tastes so that means that I'm never confident <laughs> that anybody else is going to want to pick it up and read it. Uh, and it's always a surprise and a delight when, when they do. So Sam Hart is the illustrator of The Coldest City. How did that come about? Was that, was that uh, you and Oni working together to find a, a good match for, for, the, for the material? Um, well, I I'd already knew Sam. Uh, I, Sam is British, but he lives in Brazil. Uh, but he has family here still, and I got to know him through the uh, British Comic Festival circuit. Not that there was much of a circuit back in the early 2000s, but I, I met him at comic cons and comic festivals here in the UK. And, uh, I, you know, he'd worked with friends of mine. I knew he was a good artist. Uh, he was a good man, you know, just a, a nice bloke. Um, and I, f I don't know, I just felt that he would be a good fit for this book in terms of, you know, his style. And I knew that he also was, uh, how can I, how can I put it? That he prioritized storytelling over showing off in his artwork. Uh, and that's very important to me. I always 
because there are sort of two breeds of comic artists. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't wish this, I don't mean this to sound sort of dismissive because, you know, there is absolutely an audience and it's perfectly, you know, you like what you like. You don't you don't need to apologise to me. And there is an audience for people, uh, of people, for artists who are flashy artists and they draw these amazingly detailed or bombastic pages and what have you. And people buy their books for the art more than the story. Nothing wrong with that. But I prefer to work with artists who are more focused on the story and the visual storytelling, which is a very, very specific skill to comics. Uh, the idea of being able to, you know, draw a sequence of images that makes visual sense as a story. It sounds easy, but just try doing it. <laughs> it's actually, it's a very, very specific skill. Um, and so I knew Sam was one of these artists. I knew that he would prioritise the story. And in a story as complex as the one I had just written, I knew that that would be really important. So I think I reached out to him. Uh, but at that point I'd already got Oni on board, uh, to publish it. So it was, it was a fairly easy sell to him so long as he could spare the time to do it, because that's the other thing, you know, if it takes me two months to write an original graphic novel, it takes an artist eight or nine or 10 months to draw it. That's a long time to spend on a single project. Uh, especially for a comics artist, you know, many of whom sort of leap around between multiple projects from month to month. So it was a commitment. But again, the fact that I knew him already helped, I think, because he knew that I was serious and that he could trust me not to sort of just be an idiot about it. Um, and we got on, we knew we could sort of, you know, I think we'd even shared a room, <laughs> bunked up together and shared a room at a comic festival once. So, you know, we just knew we could get on as people, which is important when you're collaborating with somebody this closely um and luckily he said yes he was literally the first person i asked and he said and only said yeah we like him see if he'll say yes and he said yes uh and and that was it which it doesn't always go that smoothly i assure you <laughs> but in this case it did let's jump ahead a little bit the the obviously we're talking because the film version is coming out what um how did that process start? How, are you involved? Is your publisher involved in terms of somebody's production co company wanting to acquire the the rights so that they can consider whether they can sell this? I, I'm, I'm curious how that process begins from your perspective when you first hear like, oh, somebody's interested in in maybe possibly eventually making a movie based on this story. From my perspective, and I'll say now in case anybody involved is listening to this, um, <laughs> this is purely from my perspective. So yes. forgive me, you know, if I make any factual errors or miss people out here. But from my perspective, Oni Press has a media arm, uh, as do most comic companies these days, because obviously, you know, s selling the option of a comic to uh, Hollywood is fairly common now. Uh, so Oni had a, has a media arm there, and they had one then as well, and the guys they were working with at that time read the script. This was before Sam. I, I'm not sure if Sam had... He, he might have done some design sketches, you know, like designing the characters, but I'm pretty sure it was before he'd actually drawn any pages. Um, and they read the script and really liked the script, or it might have been the pitch they read and then said, oh, let's read the script. But either way, they... Just the pitch and the script uh, it, it, by themselves were enough for them to say, we're going to take this out and try and sell it because we love this. Um, which surprised me because that is not 
the way it normally works. <laughs> normally they take finished projects out to pitch to, you know, producers and studios and what have you. Um, but in this case, they just had the script. So they put a pitch package together and, you know, took it around to uh, sell to people. And I didn't hear much then. Uh, you know, th- th- then it's a sort of a bit of a black hole of Hollywood, if you like. And I'm because I've been down this road many times and, uh, you know, in terms of selling an option on a on a book and then nothing happens. Uh, and that's uh, that's normal. You and I were talking about this when I visited you um, earlier this year, that that selling an option is not like you hit the jackpot. Like the, so, options are essentially almost worthless at this point. Everybody buys them, that gives them the ability to see if it will turn into something. The 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 jackpot, and I, I just use that term kind of comically, but when 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 money changes hands for real and things are and the deal is serious, is a threshold that is not the they've optioned it for a movie. It, it it's it's further down the road, and I think people don't understand it's a that a lot further down because the road, yeah, I think maybe yeah. it used to be that options were a bigger deal but now everything not everything but lots of things get optioned for not a lot of money if any and the the point where money changes hands and it's a big deal is a lot further down yeah yeah i mean basically at the point at which yeah as you say sort of serious money comes into the equation is basically they are starting filming right like literally when cameras are about to roll um you know when that happens the movie is going to be made um before that point lots of people will tell you that they want to make the movie and these people are very sincere and genuine and they really do want to make the movie but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to be made right uh and that process can go on for many years and it did indeed with this <laughs> so uh so like I say I've been down this road many times so I uh, you know, just as a sort of self-care mechanism, don't let myself get too excited about, oh, such and such producer is interested in this property or, you know, oh, we, we took the pitch out to such and such A-list actor and they were interested and that's like, oh, that's lovely. But, you know, it means nothing right. at this stage. Even signing... A deal memo doesn't mean anything. None of it means anything until a studio is going to finance this thing and cameras are, you know, sets are being built and cameras are about to roll. They, uh, that sort of thing was happening. You know, I was getting feedback of like, oh, we took the pitch to such and such and they liked it and this people didn't like it and these people wanted to do this to it and blah, blah, blah. We should say that that um, you're, Oni is doing this because part of your the, the publishing deal is that they have the, they have the audiovisual rights, essentially. Yes, yes. And you have in your deal you, how you get paid by them for it. It's not like you hand it off to them and then that's it. But that that's sort of like you, a part of your deal of being published by them is that they get to shop those rights around and then you get compensated based on how they get compensated. That's correct. That's okay. exactly it. Yeah. And they take a share of the, right. uh, uh, and yeah. again, this is, you know, ex- extremely common. The, the only major comics publishing company that doesn't follow this practice these days actually is Image Comics. Uh, every other comics publisher, large and even small, uh, follows this practice now where they will purchase those an interest those rights themselves effectively from you as part of the publishing contract and then they will try and get the movie made you know themselves and they will then take a chunk of that and compensate you with 
the rest of the money when it comes through right. and stuff. So it's part of this business partnership you have with your publisher. It isn't just exactly. you will publish my, yeah. co- my my graphic novel for me. It is also we're in business together if this property goes big we both benefit from it absolutely yeah yeah Uh, which is very different to how say prose novels work and so that's why a lot of people don't you know don't realize that but that is the way that comics works these days and there are various you know economical reasons and the cost of producing a a comic is much higher than the cost of producing Mm -hmm. a novel just in terms of labor and man hours and you know there's all manner of reasons for it so so to get back to the 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 sort of order of events like mm-hmm. i say this thing went out and i was getting feedback of yeah you know people are interested or whatever um and then and i want to say that it was um maybe a year or two years maybe two years after um the process had started that i got wind that charlie's theron's production company was interested uh with you know with the idea that charlie's would star as the main character um and hello academy award winner uh you know global star like that's a genuine kind of oh okay that did make me print my ears up again i still didn't let myself get overexcited but you know it was like no no she's really interested in this uh so i was like okay well that that's interesting and then you know shortly afterwards a deal was done and uh, Charlize's company, Denver and Delilah, did indeed purchase the option on the property. And that was uh, that was good for many reasons. One of them was because it almost guaranteed that Charlize would be the star, because that was the whole reason. Whereas if a studio had optioned it with her attached, she might drop out or they might still decide to go with somebody else or whatever, you know. Um, but given that it was her own production company that had optioned it, that almost guaranteed that she would be the star. So that was... That's very good news because that's the most important thing in getting a movie made, Uh, you know, and people who are outside of the entertainment industry may not realize this, but the most important thing to actually getting a movie made these days in in the modern industry is having a star. Uh, You know, that is if you've got a star, the chances of your movie actually going through production increase exponentially. So that was that was great. However, we still needed, we didn't have a screenplay. We didn't have a director. We didn't have uh, a studio. We didn't have a budget. <laughs> you know, we had none of these things. So even though that deal was made, it still was kind of, well, it might happen. It might not, you know, whatever. I'll just get back to writing my graphic novels. Um, and then another couple of years later, well, the book was then the book was then published because this option was actually purchased before the book was published, which again is unusual. Uh, the book came out in 2012. It did okay. It was uh, you know we got very good uh, sort of crit- it was critically received very well. Um, my sort of stated aim with the book was to write the equivalent of a John Le Carre style or a Len Dayton style spy fiction within comics because there ain't a lot of it. You know, there really isn't. There's a lot of sort of James Bond style uh, spy stuff in comics. And I do some of that myself. Nothing wrong with it. Right. But there isn't a lot of the more serious tradecraft kind of stuff within comics. And so that's what I wanted to do. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted it to be published as a graphic novel in hardback uh, with a cover that almost looks like it could be a prose novel. You know, that was very deliberate. So 
from fans of the genre, we got great reviews. Uh, as I say, critically, it was very well received. It didn't set the sales charts alight, but, you know, that's that's fine. You don't necessarily expect it to with a, a book like this. But it did okay. You know, it did okay. And then, yeah, another few years later, um, I was... And by this time, by the way, I had already written the second book <laughs> in the series. Uh, it's, it has been quite... You know, there's a gap of like five years or four years between uh, between the two books. And there'll probably be another three-year gap for the between the, the second and third book. Uh, but so I'd written already written the second book and we were looking for an artist for that. And then financing suddenly started to come together for the movie. And at that point, that's when things start to get serious. Um, and suddenly we had a director on board, or in fact, we had two directors, because originally uh, the movie is directed by Dave Leach, who is one half of Dave Leach and Chad, Chad Stelsky, who co-directed the movie John Wick, uh, the Keanu Reeves movie. They're stunt coordinators. They run, ha- have been, you know, like Chad was Keanu's stunt double in all the Matrix things movies, I think. And Dave was has been Brad Pitt's stunt double before now and stuff. So, you know, they've been in the industry for a long time. They run their own sort of stunt coordination and production company. Uh, and they made John Wick as their directorial debut to become directors. Uh, and they were going, they were attached, they were going to direct, again, as a duo, The Coldest City. Um, at the time, it was going to be both of them, just like it had been with John Wick, which was kind of, wow, okay, that's, because they were very, John Wick was such a sort of sleeper cult hit that they were, they had a lot of heat, as they say in Hollywood. And so that was great. And then financing started to come together and then can happened. This was in 2015. Uh, can happened and Charlize went to can with some financing already in place and with a director attached and you know can is where a lot of industry deals get made and what have you and um focus features who would uh was it focus or was it sierra it might have been both this is where i get hazy because i wasn't involved directly involved in these discussions basically these people went to can and sort of backed Charlie's up and said we're putting some money into this we just need more money from people around the world in exchange for distribution rights. And it's this is all real inside baseball stuff that even I don't find particularly interesting, frankly. Um, but what ha- the important thing was that we came out of Cannes with all the financing that we needed. Like, so there was enough money to make this movie for the budget that we wanted. And then we got really lucky because then this little movie called Mad Max Fury Road was released. And, of course... It just absolutely blew up. It was an enormous hit. Everybody loved Charlie's in it. And suddenly, everybody wanted to be in Charlie's Theron's next action movie. Uh, and what can I say? We got really lucky. I mean, I'm sure some of it might have been planned by the studio. Yeah, that may have been in the back of their minds. But at the same time, nobody really knew how well Mad Max was going to do. Uh, you know, even the people who worked on the movie, a lot of them had no idea whether this was actually going to work as a movie or not, because it was all in George Miller's head. The whole thing just kind of lived in his head. And and then, of course, you know, it turned out to be this amazing spectacle and a huge success. And so we just got really lucky because uh, suddenly everybody wanted to know what Charlie's doing next as an action role. And the answer was The Coldest City. And so 
immediately this flurry of interest and you know casting suddenly became a lot easier <laughs> finding people who actually would do this relatively sort of medium budget you know it's not a big budget film it's a medium budget film uh but because charlie's was making it and she's in it and it's an action movie and it's the guys from john wick people just wanted to do it as i say we got really lucky yeah, the the cast of the film is kind of bananas, right? I mean, I, I would imagine you would hear, we, we saw these occasionally get announced or people would appear in a trailer or a teaser and and uh, it, it, it's pretty nuts. I imagine that as, as it was going on every now and then you would get the word that so-and-so had signed on. But it's quite, I mean, Charlie's Theron, right, already good, but James McAvoy, John Goodman, um toby jones i noticed in the trailer i was like oh you know yep. it's just like the the number of people in this movie it's it's surprising it was like oh anthony's little movie is not like anthony's huge movie <laughs> it just keeps <laughs> keeps on rolling and that's uh it is crazy the fury oh, road yeah, thing yeah. i mean that yeah that that uh, how could you predict that fury road would end up becoming you know considered one of the best films of that year instead of what right. it probably was perceived of initially which was kind of this attempt to revive an ancient franchise by a, a moribund franchise right by an aging director by an older director who who, who maybe yeah. has lost the plot and instead it was that was not what happened <laughs> not at all not no. at all and and yeah so let's run through it so we have charlie's obviously is the star james mcavoy is the co-star uh john goodman and toby jones uh play sort of their superiors as it were um we have eddie marsan we have uh sophie butella um, fresh from The Mummy. Uh, we have Till Schweiger in a, a small role, but a good role. We have Roland Muller, Danish actor, uh, who is excellent. There's this whole... I'm probably already forgetting... Oh, James Faulkner plays the head of MI6. I mean, it is just... <laughs> You know, yeah. Think of an actor you've seen on Game of Thrones, and they're probably in this movie. Uh, it is absolutely crazy. And like I say, a lot of that was... I mean, we had a great team. We had, an, you know, I I was given sort of... I was kept informed of like the lists of, okay, we're looking at this person for this role and what have you. Um, you know, and most of the people that we ended up with were on those lists. So it wasn't a complete surprise. Uh, but yeah, I am convinced that a lot of the reason we got people, some of the people that we did, was just because they all wanted to be in a movie with Charlize. Uh, and also because it, it were, because of the sort of movie it is, a lot of them weren't required on set for long times. It was a fairly, you know, they could literally, like John Goodman, I think, was on set for one week. Yeah. Uh, or maybe maybe two weeks over the Christmas break. Um, and that was it. And, and his part's done. And it's not that he's not in it. He's in a fair few scenes. But the way that it was shot and the way the movie's structured, it was a fairly short commitment. Right. A lot of people are in very specific locations, so they do all yes. of the stuff in that location, and then they don't have to travel to another location because that's where exactly. all their scenes are. So. Right, and then they're wrapped precisely, yeah. So uh, so that, that helped as well. Um, we haven't mentioned the screenplay, which is yeah. very remiss of me, which uh, that was actually the first thing that happened after charlie's came on board was we got us we commissioned a screenplay uh and again this was a bit of a black hole to me so the actual timeline and procedure you know i may have a few things wrong but i believe that uh charlie's people and the producers saw a bunch of screenwriters and uh went with we uh, have a screenplay from kurt jonstad who uh wrote 
uh what's it called medal of valor i think act of and, valor um act of valor sorry that's it act of valor and uh 300, 300 yeah. and the <laughs> the aquaman movie uh he, he wrote the f- at least one draft of that the original draft i think of that um so he knows but acts of valor was the one that really sold the team on him because you know that's the kind of it's a fairly similar wheelhouse and also he loved the source material like he really loved the source material and he was very very enthusiastic about doing it you know he was really into it and that matters a lot as a you know speaking as a writer myself not a screenwriter but speaking as a writer that really matters a lot i've done my own adaptations sure. where i've adapted screenplays and books into comics and graphic novels and if if i'm not excited about the source material i don't want to do it you know why would you right um so that really helped and his uh, screenplay, and I'm a I'm a co-producer on the film, so I had you know I read drafts of the screenplay and I gave notes and feedback on stuff, and I went and visited the set and stuff. So I did see all this. Like I say, I wasn't there day to day, but I saw all this happening, and you know I was in the loop to an extent. So that's that's what I was going to ask. Is I I, w- I would imagine that the role of a writer of source material can really run the gamut from being. Uh, completely hands-off to being very hands-on to being kind of in the middle. And it sounds like you, yeah. you were not one of those things where you said, thank you for the checks, goodbye, <laughs> and you, that you were more involved in the process to the, to the degree, I, I would imagine, what, what's that balance? To the degree you want to be, to the degree they want you to be involved? I, I, don't, I don't know. So how, how involved did you end up being? Did you talk to the screenwriter about it? Did he pick your brain a little bit or did he just kind of go off with your source material and, and work on it and then did, did you get brought in at various points or did you just sort of see things as they were passing through the production process? Uh, mostly the latter. I mean, it was, uh, they had every right to basically say, here's your money, go away. Yeah, thank, thank, um, thank you, know, you for your, your yeah, here's the check, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, they had every right to do that and I would have had no reason or cause for complaint if they had. However, by the producer's good graces, uh, they they wanted me to have a certain amount of involvement. Um, you know, not I'm not a filmmaker, so it wasn't a case of saying, oh, let's draw on your experience in this area. It was more that they wanted to make sure I was happy with the direction they were going in, um, give notes on, you know, the story and characters. And also I was the only British person sort of behind the ah. camera, as it were. Uh, and so that that was quite useful. I did a lot of... Uh, you know, pointing out just little things that like, oh, British people don't actually say that, or we might say something like that, but we'd say it like this. And, you know, or pointing out geographical things or stuff from my own research about Berlin in that time and and so on. Uh, But it was a combination of how much I wanted to get involved in that and how much they would let me uh, in that I think I was about as involved as they were comfortable with me being. Hmm. I could have been less involved if I had cared less, basically. And I don't mean that in a sort of dismissive way, but just in the sense that if I just hadn't wanted to get involved, they would have said, okay, fine. Right. No problem. You know, that's that's fine. We'll do our thing. You do your thing. But because I was keen to be involved to an extent, uh, you know, like I say, as far as they were comfortable with, then that is basically 
how involved I was. And what I wanted to mention about the screenplay was that uh, I Kurt's <laughs> original draft was, and this may be hard for people who've seen the trailer to believe, was even more bombastic than the final product uh-huh. in some ways. Uh, and But that was great because what he did was he changed things up a lot. In some ways, not at all. In other ways, a lot. And so it allowed... when. It, allowed, it was so extreme in some ways that it allowed us to look at it and go, actually, that's too far. You know, this is too much of a change or that's gone too far. Let's rein it in. But th- that's really valuable because if you don't do that, if you only try to go a little beyond the source material, then you often have what ifs for the rest of the project. And you think, oh, what if we'd done that? What if we'd gone there? Would that have worked? We should have tried that. You have regrets. We didn't have those regrets at all. He pushed all of it to sort of the max and said, this absolutely. is how far we could go. And that let you know sort of like where you wanted to push it further and where you decided, no, that's actually... The, the, to rein he, it in, he was yeah. giving you that's, the scope of sort of like what you could do. Exactly, exactly. And it was, if, in that sense, it was great. And also I have to give Kurt credit and i i mentioned this because i know this is a big deal for a certain sec- section of the audience it was entirely kurt's idea to uh turn the french agent who in the book is pierre lasalle into a woman delphine lasalle played by sophia butella that was entirely his idea and actually a lot of people were opposed to that when he presented that first draft uh with you know changing the french agent into a woman but lorraine still has an affair with that agent, as she does in the book, except in the book, you know, she's a woman and he's a man. Uh, so turning it into a same-sex love affair, uh, that did get some, you know, the, some people were reserved about that, were kind of like, I'm not sure about that. I really, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not comfortable. But I was all for it. I immediately, as soon as I read those scenes, I was like, yes, genius. It's a way <laughs> to, it's a way to get another woman into the film, frankly, because it is you know, very, very male-centric, as is the book, to be fair, because of the times. Um, uh, And also, it just puts such an interesting spin and dynamic on the character and on their relationship. Uh, Yeah, I loved it. From the moment I read it, I was like, yes, I'm on board with this. Um, And that was entirely Kurt's idea. So, I, you know, massive uh, props to him for that. And then, yeah, later iterations of the screenplay sort of toned it down. What we've ended up with is something that is... I mean, you've read the book. And if anybody out there has read the book and also seen the trailers, you will know that the trailer, the trailers do not look like the book (laughs) in many ways. Uh, The book, like I said, is a very John le Carré, Len Dayton, Ian McIntosh style, sober, noirish spy thriller. Slow burn. Lots of dark alleyways, trench coats. Yeah, lots of talking heads. You know, Lorraine, the main character, pulls a gun I think three times in the entire book, fires it once and never actually doesn't even hit anyone when she does fire it. Uh, You know, there is not a lot of what we think of as cinematic action in the book, whereas the movie (laughs) is full of cinematic action. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's all now Dave Leach because, like I said, Dave and Chad were originally going to direct it together as they had done with John Wick, but then John Wick 2 started rolling and they basically clashed. And so they had to decide which of them would take which project. And so Chad concentrated on John Wick 2 and Dave took The Coldest City, what now became Atomic Blonde. Although, from what I gather, because, as like I say, they're business partners, so they were constantly looking at one another's work and sort of, you know, still acting like partners. It was just that 
you know, they were kind of in different locations for once doing this. And so, yeah, what we have, Dave wanted to, I've read an interview with him. I mean, I saw him on set and we spoke about sort of changes and stuff uh, and making changes to things when you adapt to different medium. And as I've said, I'm, I do adaptations myself. So I'm very comfortable with the idea of you might have to make some changes to make it work in this new medium. Uh, you know, that is often the case. My favourite movie of all time is Blade Runner, which is nothing like the book that it, or the novella that it's based on. Uh, but it is a great movie and it's a great book. You know, I love them both. Uh, the Bourne Identity is the movie is almost nothing like the books. Again, it's a great book. It's a great movie. So a few people, Dave and Charlie's included, did sort of say, I hope you don't mind that we're changing quite a few things here and dialing up the action. And I was like, no, that's fine. You know, what I want out of this is a really great movie. That's the important thing. I don't care how faithful it is to the book. I, what I care about is that it's is that you have this great character and that she's still an awesome, strong character and that you have a great movie. You know, I've, I've written the best graphic novel I could. Now you go and make the best film you can. And so what Dave wanted to do was take the noir and saturate it with colours. It's like, what if we... What if we take a noir and instead of making it black and white and cold and stark as the book is, what if instead we saturate it with 80s neon (laughs) and really, really make it colourful and loud and brash? Can you still make a noir that works? And I mean, the answer happily is yes. And so what you have is a film that is in some ways, and this is the point I was driving at originally, in some ways it is not at all like the book. Uh, it looks quite different. It is very, very colourful and loud and brash uh, and, you know, just visually very, very different and full of action, whereas the book is not. However, the story, the plot, the structure, many of the characters and even lines of dialogue in the movie are basically the same as the book. Like there are whole lines of dialogue just lifted from the book and they're in the movie. Most of the characters in the movie are the same as they are in the book. The overall plot and structure is the same as the book. There are some changes here and there, you know, in the details, but the broad, if you've read the book, you will recognise the story of this movie as, oh yeah, that's the story of the book, Mm. Um, which I wasn't expecting at all. And I had no, you know, like I said, there was no, there's no contractual obligation to deliver that when you sell the rights to something like this and, you know, somebody's going to adapt it. Well, then, how they adapt it is entirely up to them. That's part of what they're paying for is the ability to make whatever the hell they like. Uh, So I had no expectation that it would be as faithful in some ways to the book as it is, Uh, which, you know, obviously is enormously pleasing, but it's different in all the right ways. Uh, And I, I did, I have seen the movie. I mean, I saw a rough edit, like I say, I was on set for a while and then I saw a rough edit, um, and it was really rough, you know, like special effects were missing an ADR looping hadn't been done. And uh, yeah, it was very, very rough. But I, even then I could tell, oh yeah, this works. This is going to work. And then I saw the final thing at South by Southwest a few months ago in Austin. And it really does, you know, happily, I know I'm biased. Of course I am, <laughs> but <laughs> it really does work. Uh yeah, it's and like I say, if you've read the book, you will recognise the book in this movie. Yes, it's different, but the DNA of the book and especially of the main character of Lorraine Broughton is absolutely there. And that, to me, was, you know, th- one of the most important things. So I'm really pleased about that. 
So if this, I, the nature of Hollywood uh, deals, I assume that, um, as with everything in Hollywood, you you make your money up front, and then and then you know the studio makes the money after that. So I would imagine if this is a huge blockbuster success uh, at, at the box office, that doesn't impact you directly but i would imagine that if this is successful um that it impacts you kind of in the long run because your name is attached to it and your work was obviously great raw material for making a film is that sort of how you're viewing it is you want it you want it to do well obviously because it's a thing that came from your mind and your two month sabbatical but also i would imagine career-wise uh this is having having had a major motion picture made from something that you've done is good for you just kind of in general are my assumptions right about that absolutely correct yeah that is exactly the case uh yeah i don't get residuals from the movie or anything like that um uh, myself and sam the artist we got our money yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we got paid and we split 50, 50 and that's, that's our chunk. Um, we don't get, yeah, residuals from, you know, uh, if it makes millions and millions at the box office or whatever, that's all for the people who actually made the movie. However, yes, as you say, the mere fact that, uh, this is based on one of my books and, you know, fingers crossed, it looks like it will probably be a success. How big a success? Nobody knows. You know, and nothing is guaranteed. Maybe it won't. Maybe in a week's time, I'll be hiding in a closet somewhere <laughs> weeping. Um, but, you know, right now we're all pretty confident that it will be at least, you know, you that something uh, it will at least perform well enough that you can say, yes, that was a success. Whether it will perform well enough to make a sequel, whether it will perform well enough to, you know, be a, a genuine hit. We don't know. Um, but obviously we're, you know, fingers crossed, we're all hoping it does. And so... That alone, as assuming that it is profitable, you know, that it is a success uh, because there is no other measure of success in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares about anything other than did it make a profit? Uh, did it make money? Um, assuming that it is, then yes, there. I mean, there's already just over the course of the last couple of years since everything since that trip to Cannes, uh, there has already been a lot more interest in a lot of my books uh, and comics and what have you from... Hollywood and various people, you know, wanting to talk to me about uh, other media. Because I, I would imagine once you see somebody, if you're in Hollywood or similar, you see somebody who finds something and likes it, then there's that like lifted eyebrow of like, oh, you know, there, there's somebody we should keep an eye on or we should check out his stuff too. And they, they go and they make they make this movie. And, and I would imagine that there's some aspect of it is once somebody notices this stuff, then everybody notices them noticing and it spreads out a little bit. And that's that's good for you. Yes, that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And so, as I say, assuming that it is a success, you know, the hope is uh, and certainly, you know, my agent uh, is very much hoping this uh you know the hope is that yes there will then be a lot more interest in uh doing the same thing with my other properties and i want to i want to take a moment to sort of get a bit uh a bit arty if you yeah. like uh, about this about this which is to say that i am a firm believer and i've stated this many many times over the years and it's even you know i talk all this stuff about hollywood now because i've been involved in this process but really i firmly believe that you must make an artist must make uh the best product they can in the medium in which they're working totally and by that what i mean is there is a rash of 
It's dying now, thank goodness, but for a while it was quite prevalent. There was a rash, and it does still go on, of uh, people making comics with the intent that they would try and sell the movie option. <laughs> they were literally writing, you know, taking what's a great high concept that I could pitch to a movie studio. Okay, but a movie studio is not going to listen to me. However, if I make it as a comic, they might option it. That was, you know, that was happening a lot over the last five to ten years. As I say, it's dying off a bit now, thank goodness. But it does still go on. And and some of those books have indeed been optioned. Some of them have even been made into movies naming no names. But I have always believed that that is a, a poor way to do it because what you end up with then, almost inevitably, is something that is not a good comic and also doesn't make a good movie. Right. Uh, whereas if you make a great comic or at least the best comic you can working within the comic medium, then you are going to get more attention, paradoxically, from Hollywood. Uh, you know, and again, not saying that that should be an aim. Your aim should always be to make, in my case, the best comic I can. But at the back of my mind, you know, I'm, I'm not blind to it. I know that doing that is actually going to attract more attention from Hollywood, TV, whoever, than trying to make a quote movie on paper um so and the reason i mention this is because there are people within the comics industry who do kind of as i say make comics that are clearly meant to be movie pitches or sometimes actually may even be failed movie pitches you know things that they have not been able to get made as a movie sure. so they make it as a comic and then sell the option on the comic instead there are novels like know, this too where you can you can see that this is an attempt to to make something that hollywood will option and they want it to be the next harry potter and so they have written it as a commercial vehicle exactly and there is you know there is a certain uh subset of people out there who will probably think that that's what i'm doing now and that from now on everything i write you know i will be doing so with the thought like oh, I, oh if i write it this way i can sell it to hollywood and that is just not you only have to look at my body of work for the last 20 years <laughs> and how utterly non-commercial much of it is uh you know that is not how i operate because i think it just does a disservice and look at what is the movie up until about what was it now four years ago or so what is the the comic book that everybody wanted to make a movie of even though they all said it was completely unfilmable it's watchmen yeah. for almost 30 years you know, Watchmen was deemed to be unfilmable, and yet everybody in Hollywood wanted to film it because it's such an incredibly well-crafted comic. Um, and so, yeah, I've always taken that as a touchstone of, like, just just make the best work you can in the medium you're working in, and then, you know, good things may happen as a result. But even if they don't, and this is the flip side of it, if good things you know, if you if nobody makes a, a movie of a book that I write, as long as I've written a good book, then I can still be proud of that book. Whereas if I write a compromised book and then also fail to sell it to Hollywood, then I've got nothing. I don't even have a good book to show for it. You know, I, no, I, I I believe it that you you try to make the right thing for the right medium and good things will happen rather than trying to game the game it out, creating art that is actually just sort of like a, a cynical ploy to get 
you know, again, you, you need to get paid, right? But ideally, the best material is going to come from a, a more natural place than than trying to game Absolutely. the system. Now, I do want to ask though, because you had you had this this concept and you had this script, and some parts of this process of having it made into a film happened before there was even a book published or before there was even even an illustrator. Um, and you've worked in other media like video games too. Have you considered? trying to you know trying to write things for film or television instead because like in some oh, yeah. in some ways what you did here because you're a comics writer you, this is the medium you're known for you've got the you've got the connections in the publishing industry but a lot of this was sold on your concept and your script not on a finished product which says to me that you could nothing all credit to oni press but you could eliminate the middleman potentially because they the book hadn't even been published they found people to connect you with but your your core ideas it wasn't even a a graphic novel yet yeah i mean that's absolutely something that i've i i I wrote my first screenplay like 10 years ago or something uh or maybe maybe even more i mean it's it was terrible and it's at the bottom of the drawer and it will (laughs) never ever be seen but that but the point is yes uh you know i i have a few screenplays in the bank as it were uh i have a spec pilot you know sort of uh, sitting there as well and yeah this is I am, uh, you know, I regard myself anyway as a pretty versatile writer. You know, I write comic books, I write graphic novels, I write video games, I write short stories, and I write novels. Uh, So, you know, I am confident that I could uh, write a good screenplay, you know, or that I have written good screenplays, you know, and can do that sort of thing. Um, And so, yeah, it's obviously it's a lot easier. Those doors are starting to open for me now. And so that is something that I am looking at doing and I'm exploring, you know, options and opportunities within that space. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I would very much enjoy doing, I'm sure. However, all of that said, comics is my first love. Yeah. You know, I will, I, I can't foresee a time that I won't be writing comics. Um, and part of this comes down to uh again like uh, free time and sort of being able to take time off because when i have written uh screenplays and pilots scripts and all, all that sort of stuff it's been because i have been able to take a couple of weeks off from paying the bills at some time or another you know uh and i haven't been able to do that a lot over the last 10 years so i don't have as much sort of in the bank there as i might like uh for somebody who is you know sort of been around as long as i have but that's because i've been so busy writing stuff to pay the bills uh and you know and that for me yeah my bread and butter is comic books and i i love comic books i've been reading comic books since i could read literally since i was old enough to read so like i say i don't foresee a time that i won't be writing comics but other other stuff as well absolutely that's that's on my radar great well i hope this is a wild success for for you and for everyone else i'm really looking forward to seeing it since i haven't seen it and the trailers look fantastic i think that um the use of 80s music and the 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 color palette that you described earlier it strikes me as being 
Um, yes, a, an 80s noir. In fact, you could argue, even though it's so very different from how the book looks, that when you made the choice to set this in 1989, you were kind of opening the door for someone else to interpret it as, well, wait a second, a Cold War a Cold War story told in the 60s would look very different than a Cold War story told in the 80s. And from the trailers, I had that thought of like, oh, I get, I see, I see what they're doing here. And the, the, the great yeah. music selections that they've used in the trailers, especially to put you in that time. You should see the soundtrack uh, album. Uh, it's just it is full of, and the movie is full of 80s music yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and yeah the soundtrack album that reflects those choices is is just yeah that is uh something if you are a child of the 80s you know it's something a bit special <laughs> looking, looking forward to it so i hope i'm looking forward to seeing it and i'm also hoping it does well because we're all rooting for you it's some you know i had that moment where i was talking to somebody and i said i said I know the person who who who, uh, who wrote that. Who, you know who did the thing. It's based on his book. It's based on his graphic novel. It's just very exciting to see somebody we know caught in the whirlwind of the Hollywood experience and machine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so I hope you continue to enjoy this ride. And I hope it goes uh, it goes good places. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, so do I. I hope and, you're and... not cowering in the closet crying to right, yourself, hiding in, in the closet, August. yeah, weeping. I hope not. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right. Well, so, Anthony, we should say that uh, people who want to hear more from you uh, talking about interesting works of art that are, are sometimes not loved, but have people who love them anyway, should listen to Unjustly Maligned, your podcast here on The Incomparable, uh, because that is a very fun concept. And I love how it keeps keeps unfolding as the episodes go along, the different things that get dug up there. I remember when we talked about it at the very conception of it, but um, it's so great to hear. I love listening to people talk about something they love. And the fact that exactly. it's something that yeah. they feel like other everybody else hates is kind of an extra, extra level on it <laughs> that I really enjoy. So yeah, it's um, yeah. Uh, please go and find us there. the The short URL for people to find that is at ump.fm. Uh, and yeah, I think we're up to by the time this is broadcast, we'll be up to like eighty two episodes. I think. Um, so yeah, there's a whole lot to dig through in the archives. Some real, you know, classics. And turkeys yeah. uh, of all kind of media, movies, <laughs> yeah. video games, comic books, novels, whatever. It's amazing. You know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on this edition. It's great to talk about, thank you for having about me. the behind the scenes things. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this special creator background sort of thing. Go see Atomic Blonde in theaters at various times. It's July 28th in the US, a little bit later in other parts of the world. And it all springs initially from the mind of Anthony Johnston. What a terrifying thought. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.